0: All right, really, really good to be with you tonight. And when Henry asked me to do something on uh, on the culture and the church, um, a number of things ran through my mind. First, first of all, practical things, and then uh, theological things, and uh, then application as we put it together. So that's, that's the direction I want to go right now. I want to talk for a few moments about uh, some some practical issues that we face in the church today, whatever size of church we have. There are some unique challenges. In the church today, in this culture, the church has always dealt with culture. Always had been challenged by the world around them. If you want to call it that, we'll look at the definition of that in a moment. But um, but we have unique things going on right now, so I want to maybe bring up a few of those, to get you thinking, some of the things you will be challenged by, and deal with as far as uh, your church is concerned. We could uh, we could probably just go through the list here and have you guys throw out some names and. Ideas of challenges. But let me just, to save time. Just let me do that tonight. Uh, here are I got seven, eight things here that I think are challenges from the culture that are unique to our age. All right. So, uh, and first of all, there is egalitarianism, and this is uh, it's interesting uh, that uh, this is uh, creeping into our circles more and more and more. So uh, egalitarianism is, uh, is really growing. Uh, Paul asked me actually to do a review of a book not long ago uh, that just actually is very recently written by a, a garb pastor and theologian uh, who, uh, who's changed his position to a full egalitarian position. And he's using the same argument that's been around for a long time. But, but we have somebody who's basically an IFCA type, a conservative Christian who's now swung over that direction, You've got a lot of that rhetoric going on right now in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Beth Moore is making a lot of waves right now in that regard. That is, uh, she's right now just everybody's listening to Beth Moore, and so she is uh, She's pushing the egalitarian issues. So uh, this is something we face in our churches, you know. And our women are reading books, and uh, people are going to conferences and they're bringing back this stuff, and uh, so they come to our churches. Our pastors. And how do we deal with that in a gracious way without looking like we're stuck in the 1950s or something? And that's hard. It is hard. Uh, probably uh, the, the challenge that faces us most directly today, maybe not yet in our church, churches, but it's really creeping in, is the LGBTQ issues. And uh, this is just everywhere right now. And it's not uh, a matter of can we give equal rights to the gay community? But uh, we have to endorse the gay community and their agenda. And if we don't, we are haters. Uh, we, we are ugly people. We, uh, and, and one, I, I, I think there's a real possibility in, in a lifetime of at least some of you that uh, we'll lose tax exemption, uh, possibly uh, more than that. Uh, some, I, some in Canada have been put in jail. Some pastors for preaching against uh, a homosexual agenda. And I could see that possibly happening someday in America. It's uh, it's a difficult... Are we willing to pay that price to uh, take a stand on, uh, on these types of issues? If we would... Uh, if the government moves in and takes our buildings that we paid hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for, uh, we invested so much in, are we willing to walk away from those buildings for that reason? Uh, by the way, I just learned something the other day. Some of you probably all know about this. But do you know where the Church of the Open Door got its name? The, uh, back in the day, early days of the IFCA, uh, churches were closed by denominations when the pastors refused to go along with the uh, denominational agenda. They took their stand and, uh, the, and they started to move out of those denominations, and the denominations moved in and closed the doors, locked these people out of buildings they had spent their life investing themselves in, and they went down the street and started the churches of the open door. Now, I never knew that. Uh, all my life until last week so you probably all knew that for years but uh, that shows how slow I am I, I catch on slowly so we've got those issues now here's another one this is not quite so nasty and that's technology Don't we, we love technology when it works uh, we spent 15 minutes up here making this work you never know when it's going to work but technology gives us opportunities to spread our ministries in ways that we've never done before a lot of you churches have live feed now uh, and uh, that's a wonderful tool. We've got a number of shut-ins, yeah, even in their almost 90 years old. Some of them are 90s, who now watch our our uh, services live, and they really appreciate that because they cannot get out. And it's simple technology. When a 90 year old can turn on a computer and watch you live, that's that must be low grade technology, right? Because I can't, I can't do half of that. So it's pretty cool that we have those kind of that we can get our ministries out. Our 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 blogs, our uh, papers, and all these things. What an opportunity for the gospel we have today with technology that we didn't have some years ago. But, of course, we know that comes with some negative side effects as well. Uh, the obvious things is all the junk on on the Internet, uh, the pornography and, and other kinds of things that really distract us. But, but uh, most of us aren't personally at least struggling with that. Uh, but, you know, what we're finding is that technology changes the way we think. There's been two significant books written recently that I would recommend you'd look into. Uh, one is written by a Christian individual that works with John Piper in Desiring God. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And this is a younger uh, techie kind of guy in his 30s maybe. He uh, He's all about technology and all about the phone. Uh, yet he's recognized that that the phone is changing our lives, changing the way we think, changing the way we interact with people. So I read that book a year or so ago. gave it to my younger staff guys, and they've now taught it to our high school department, uh, at least some of the material, because uh, the phone is changing our world. And and they look at look at the smartphone is only eleven years old. You know that eleven years old, and think how it's changed our world today. And that you know it's getting more and more that way. Here's another book, not written by a Christian, written by a scientist, neuroscientist, called The Shallows. Called The Shallows. He is showing uh, scientifically, as well as uh, uh, anecdotally and, and research and so forth, how just using the internet changes the way we think, the way we concentrate. And he's showing there that even when you're reading blogs and reading books on the internet, and some of you... I don't know how many of you have done this, but a lot of the younger men are getting rid of physical books and they're going to uh, reading their books online and, uh, and reading a lot of blogs and reading a lot of, of those types of things rather than uh, reading long books and regular discourse. He, they're showing that that actually changes the way we concentrate. That because you re- For example, you're reading a book or an article online and as you come across a link, uh, that in the blue, you know, for those that aren't quite so savvy, and you click on that, and you pop right on over to another article. You lose, you lose concentration. And by reading articles and so forth in that way, we are focusing our our ability to focus and think in uh, linear terms, in concentration terms, is changing. And science is actually showing that today. And uh, and he recommends, and others also, D. A. Carson talks about this, I would recommend as well. Stay reading books. Uh, read books in, in depth and let those books... You can't say in an article what a book says. Uh, the the argument of a book is so important. So I recommend that uh, you look at that. But that's interesting how technology, things that are not evil in itself, can change us in ways that are not necessarily all that well. Well, as pastors and leaders of churches... Other things are also on the agenda. And one of the things I've noticed in recent years is with the wealth of Americans comes travel. And people are gone all the time. It, when, uh, in, earlier in my ministry, the summer people would go away on the summer vacations and they would be gone and all that. Now it's all year long. You know, every time they get a two day vacation, they go to Disney World. And, they, and our, our young people have traveled places around the globe that I still haven't gotten to yet. I mean, it's just the wealth and the travel, and people are gone. It's hard to keep a cohesive ministry sometimes going. And then uh, a couple of that with sports. Just talked to a, a fellow that I, I, I fellowship with, involved in Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He's a leader in that movement. And he says that he works among within the most idolatrous. A form of of anything in America, sports has become the biggest idol in America, and you cannot compete with sports. I I, I grew up playing sports, uh, loving sports, did all sorts of things. Uh, I've gotten to a place. Most recently, I just almost I'm almost turned off by sports because it's taken over the world. It's taken over our churches and little kids' sports. Uh, where eight-year-olds are traveling all over the country to play soccer and, and, and they've got to be involved in this stuff, the parents think and they're taking our kids out of Sunday school and, and Bible cl- uh, clubs and, and church and this is hard this is, this is a cultural issue that uh, I don't think we I don't know that we're going to be able to change very well we'll do the best we can to teach and train but uh, we're, we're in an area where people simply don't see the problem and uh, how are we going to adjust our, our churches and our ministries to minister to people uh, who have caught up in this? Kind of along that line as well is something, again, I've observed in recent times is the minimization of the local church. Um, with all the retreats and the conferences and the camps and all the things that are out there that people can do, uh, on top of the regular travel and the sports and all of that, the, the local church it's become, becoming minimalized by so many. It, yeah, yeah, we'd like to be at worship. We'd like to be uh, have our, in Sunday school for our children. Uh, we'll get there when we can, but it, that is definitely secondary, maybe not even secondary. It's simply not important. And so there, there's something that's been lost in most of our circles, and that includes Bible uh, church circles, that the coming together as a body of Christ in a local assembly is central to the spiritual growth of an individual. That is pretty much lost in most circles. There's a few of the confessional Presbyterians who still fight for this. And, and one gal in particular I'm thinking of that does a ministry, uh, she's, she's a conference speaker. She will not speak at a conference on Sunday. You know, most of the ladies' conferences and a lot of our other conferences, they carry over through a Sunday. She won't do it. She's very popular. She said, "I'll do a Friday, Saturday, but I will not do a Sunday. I need to be in my own church, worshiping with God's people in my my body of Christ, and I want to do that." Where do you hear that today? Honestly, you don't hear that in many many circles. So the minimization of the local church is difficult. Plus, a lack of commitment, a lack of commitment to anything but sports, is uh, is evident throughout this. And the nuns—you probably have heard of the nuns. Uh, N-O-N-E-S the nuns are now there are more nuns than there are Southern Baptists. A nun is someone who does not affiliate with any uh, denomination or Christian organization of any kind. They would would write on their census that they have no religious affiliation. That is growing so rapidly uh, I think it's over 20% of Americans now claim to be nuns Uh, where it was probably 10% 10 years ago. This is the fastest growing religious group in the country where people simply don't have a need, see a need whatsoever, to be involved Mm -hmm. in organized religion. Although, uh, probably a majority of the nuns would claim to be spiritual. And so we're dealing with people who think they're spiritual but have nothing to do with organized faith. And we're going to be facing, you probably got some of those in your churches or your community as well. They don't see the need to be involved with that. A couple more things I would mention. One is the, the therapeutic, psychological, cultural change that we're facing today. Uh, therapeutic. Uh, not, sin has been airbrushed away. No one is sinful anymore. Today they got phobias. they got psychological issues. They need medication. But sin is gone. Mininger wrote that book years ago, Whatever Happened to Sin? But that was years ago it's it's got a lot worse since then, so we're dealing with even in our own churches, we're dealing with people that do not recognize sin is the problem. they think everything's a disorder or a psychological thing and so we've been we've been there. we have this therapeutic culture, and uh most of you know if you don't if you follow my ministry that I read a lot of books, a lot of bad books, as well as hopefully some real good books but uh in most Christian books that I read, uh, in the general nature of Christian books, they're laced with psychology. Just as if it's right out of the Bible. And uh, our people are reading that, and they're not picking up. Along with that, I might add, we live in a in an era of lack of discernment. So one of the pastors here told me yesterday that their women's group was wanting to read, a, for a Bible study, a particular book, And uh, it didn't look good to him, Uh, so he looked up on my website to see if I had done a review on it. Fortunately for him, he said, uh, because he didn't have to read the book, I had done an extensive review on the book. And the book is a mess, just an absolute mess. And so they took the review to the ladies in their church, and the ladies uh, stopped doing, stopped the book review, uh, book uh, study, which once once people get invested in a book, it's hard to stop them better to stop them up front so they said yeah we'll stop we're not going to do this but then that one of the ladies said to the pastor's wife what really bothers me is I read that whole book and didn't see any of that stuff didn't see any of it so we're living in an age even in our own churches where lack of discernment our people don't know the Bible very well and I'll get to that as part of the solution in a moment but uh, we have that and then let me mention one more thing and I want to bounce off of that one and that is that uh, we are living in an age where social justice has become mainstay in our churches, not uh, not just the churches out there, but it, they've, it's crept into the Bible churches and the Baptist churches and and so forth. The social justice is pretty much taking over. For those of you that are more interested in, on what, than what I'm going to say right now, at the theological roundtable tomorrow or Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we're going to start off by talking about social, the social justice movement of the present time with MacArthur's uh, documentation, or document and others have come along. On, this is not the same thing as the sh- social gospel of 100 years ago. It's a slightly different twist, and it is infiltrating our churches. And so I see that as a major, major concern because uh, social justice has replaced biblical discipleship. In many cases. So, these are eight or nine uh, cultural challenges for our churches today, our pastors, our leaders. And uh, if you might be in a community that misses some of this, if you're in a rural community or you say, well, this hasn't got to us yet. Don't be too sure. Uh, with the internet today, this stuff gets to everybody pretty quickly. Uh, I'm going to be teaching a seminar sometime this week, I don't know when, they haven't told me, on uh, Christocentric. Hermeneutics, which is also infiltrating us, and it's very concerning to me. I've written on that, and some of you've read that. But I, I, just taught, I taught uh, two classes at, an, at my church on Sunday school recently on this, and uh, there was a man from Brazil, a pastor from Brazil, who's visiting, and uh, he's looking at the at America to go to a seminary or something, and I thought this would really blow over his head. You know, this is this is pretty heavy stuff especially what I gave that particular day. And so he met me afterwards and said, this is all over Brazil. The crystal-centric hermeneutic is taken over Brazil because it is a reformed covenantal hermeneutic, and reformed covenantalism is making tremendous inroads into the Latin American countries, especially Brazil. And so, uh, so what we think, and I thought this guy would know what I'm talking about. He knew more about it than I did. He lives it. And so, uh, uh, so don't anything that's coming around, it's going to get to your people eventually. So we need to be up on that as much as we can. So those are some of the cultural challenges I think we're facing today. And so I want to move off and talk a little bit about some, some of these issues for a little bit. I want to go into the theology for a moment. Uh, there was a book written in 1951. By, the, by uh, Richard Niebuhr, called *Christ and Culture*, and this is still the standard book when it comes to the Christianity and culture. Even though it was written in 1951, and he was a neo-orthodox. He wasn't exactly in our camp, but this is his signature book. And he spent 10 pages trying to define what a culture was. And when he got done, I couldn't understand what he's talking about. <laughs> So D. A. Carson a few years ago wrote a book called *Christ and Culture Revisited*, and he wrote a definition I could understand. So I'm going to give it to you here. The uh, Christ, the culture has become a fairly plastic concept that means something like a set of values broadly shared by some subset. to find this thing here of the human population. That's about as close as we got to what. Okay, so. Some values that we share within a subset. So that means that in our American society, there are numerous cultures. And you don't all represent the same culture. Some of you from the south, some from the east, uh, some from the west. They're different cultures to some degree, but different value systems. Now, for those that really want a real heavy one, here's a guy that needs a haircut. And he wrote a very heavy uh, one I'm not even going to try to explain to you. <laughs> okay, only half an hour, so I mean, I mean, it only goes so long, right? uh Niebuhr came up with five approaches to culture. He thought culture was easy, didn't you? So he came up with five approaches to culture that, and the Christian that uh we want to look at briefly and uh see which one that uh are ones that might be biblical and so don't get too excited yet about uh, analyzing these but the first one is Christ against culture and Niebuhr saw this as a uh, reaction uh, in which all loyalty is given to Christ and all claims to loyalty by culture is rejected in other words people totally moved out of culture and he thinks the first century Christians did that I don't agree but uh, plug in here monasticism where the, the monks and so forth pulled out of society to develop their own culture with their own subset that had nothing to do with the culture at large and then claimed to reach out for Christ. Of course, they were Catholic and we're glad called, they, they couldn't reach out too much but um, that would be the first approach. Secondly, it's Christ of culture and this is the idea of engagement in social good as the best way to be an example of Christ. Um, the formula is the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and it's b- best represented by theological liberalism so the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man is the mantra of theological liberalism it's not a biblical terminology so this is the, 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 the view that um, and, and Carson totally rejects this particular view and rightly so uh, it's the idea then that the best thing the church can do is improve our society is make our world a better place to be. And that's what we do, and that's all we do, basically. So you can go to almost any theological uh, liberal denomination, and you can see that this is what they're doing. They have all sorts of of food drives and pantries and and reach-out programs, but they're all social programs. Uh, They're good programs socially, many times, but they have nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with scripture. That's Christ of culture. Christ and culture are the same the next one is Christ above culture and this is the idea that portrays Christ as the fulfillment of cultural aspiration and restorer of the institutions of true society, yet Christ remains above culture, in other words it's kind of the idea that, uh, that Christ is uh, he, he's going to fulfill culture, he's going to, be, he, he's going to restore the institutions it's really quite confusing so I'm going to go to number four Because I understand that one better. And that is Christ and culture as a paradox. And that is, they see culture as godless and sick. Nevertheless, Christians belong to culture. And they do not seek to escape or to conform in either one. Now, I believe this is the most biblical one. I want you to go to a couple passages real quickly. Go to to Acts chapter 2 and verse forty. Acts 2.40 There are a couple of verses of Scripture that are just kind of stick out to me as uh, speaking of the fact that our society, our culture is spiritually sick, spiritually uh, depraved. And the Scripture does not pull any punches to say so. So look at this verse with me. Uh, The early church, of course, the church is just forming in 2.40. And what does Peter say in his sermon he says, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So here's a perverse generation. And be saved from it. Be saved out of it. Let me take you to another similar verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Philippians 2, 15. So Paul's writing to the church of Philippi of course and uh, speaking of their role in society and in life and he says in verse 15 so that you will prove yourself blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world I think that's a wonderful definition of our uh, role in society Notice, this is a wonderful verse. we in. We live in a midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We need never forget that. Uh, we live in a you a, a world that uh, <clears throat> philosophically is out of line with God. Even the good people, who might in very many ways do nice things and b- beneficial things, nevertheless they do not have a biblical worldview. They're crooked. They're twisted. They're perverted. In that sense, the word pervert. Perversion here does not mean what we think of a perverted person. It's a word twisted. So there's twisted in their thinking. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. What's our task? Well, Jesus said it pretty well, didn't he? Salt and lights in the world. So he doesn't tell them to pull out. To go away and be monks, nuns. He tells them you live in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation, culture. And you are to prove to be lights. So there's, so there's one real advantage, and we don't like it, but it's one real advantage to watching America go rapidly downhill morally and spiritually, and that is as it gets darker, the lights can appear brighter. And some of you live in cultures, such as the Deep South, that, that everybody's everybody's saved, right? <laughs> you, you can't meet a non-Christian. Everybody's a bumper sticker that says something about Christ. And so you live in that environment, that culture, and they they all think they're saved, but they but they don't understand what the gospel is, many times. And so, how do we show them that? Well, he says we are to be uh, lights in the world, to show them the true light of Jesus Christ. So that's our task. I I see the our role as, uh, as the what basically D.L. Moody said over a hundred years ago. You know, we are we are bringing a rescue ship to rescue people from this world system from Satan from hell from sin we're rescuing people out of this world our task is not to make the world a better place so that they're more comfortable on their ride to hell so I think this one fits the best the last one has to do with Christ as a transformer of culture and this launches us off into what I want to talk about for a bit Uh, this is the idea that it goes really back to Augustine in his City of God I don't know how many have read that But uh, it was an amillennial view of of eschatology and of the church. But he said, man's nature is corrupt, but culture can and must be transformed. A, A new heaven and a new earth awaits the coming of Christ, who cannot come until a cultural conversion is brought about by believers. Now, some take that position very clearly. If we can make the world a better place, Christ will come back. Uh, now, that's postmillennialism, as most of you know. The postmillennial liberals think if we make the world a better place, we will be Christ to the world. And so when they talk about Christ coming, we are Christ. He has no hands but our hands, no feet but our feet. That is a postmillennial understanding of theology. Um, but the more conservative theological postmillennialists believe we have to bring the majority of people to Christ before Christ will come back but coupled with that now not only the evangelism but now we have to change society we have to change the culture itself to transform that culture in order that uh, it, 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 we're preparing for the return of Christ now not all, not, not most, none of us are, are post millennials. but I'm amazed how many pre are buying into this theology so that people would have a different eschatology, but practically they're living out a post-millennial lifestyle in which they believe we have to transform culture, fix this world system in preparation for the return of Christ. And one of the, one of the people that a lot of people are reading is N.T. Wright, who writes exactly in that vein, and he's quoted everywhere in middle-of-the-road middle evangelicalism, Christianity today, type of evangelicalism. He is her poster boy, and he's kind of paving the way for this particular theological system. So, this is where I want to jump off on for just a few moments to think about how this idea of the church is the agency of God to not only bring souls to Christ. So, we're going to look at people that are theologically uh, conservative, they do want to bring people to Christ. So we don't want to say they're not, they don't want to do that. But there are also people who believe that the second prong of our gospel is transforming of our cultures and our world now. And by the way, that is the doctrinal uh, statement, the mission statement of the, the Lausanne conference, or Congress, they call it, started by Billy Graham and John R. W. Stott has met three times over the years that is the mission statement that there is a two pronged gospel they don't use the word prong it's the word I invented nobody nobody uses it but me uh, maybe I'll maybe catch on somewhere but uh, so far it hasn't but, but we're transforming the world we're feeding the hungry we're digging the wells we're making this world a better place to live and we're giving the gospel and that is their mission statement and that's pretty much getting, being encapsulated around the world today Carson says concerning all this in his book, Christ and the Culture Christ of Culture is unbiblical, he, he thinks that the second one is totally unbiblical he thinks the other four options are, there's some truth to them, but I really believe the fourth option is the biblical one so it doesn't matter what Carson says or I say, what, what does the Bible say, that's all that matters right, now obviously I don't have time to do a thorough uh, exegesis of the New Testament but I want to hit the highlights on this, and you can go back and, and look at it in more detail. And if you go to our website and, and read the social justice articles, uh, th- this material will be in there with the scriptures and so forth. And if you haven't done a thorough study, I encourage you to do so. But uh, the teaching of the New Testament, what about the individual Christian? We've already seen that we should be salt and light in the world. I think it's a general statement that is true. Salt and light in the world. But what does that, what does that look like in real, in real life? We start with Jesus' example. Because um, those that are preaching social justice go back to a number of, of proof texts or sources to support their view. One is Old Testament Israel. One is the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1. Another one is Jesus' example. And that's their primary uh, basis for their views. So let's take a moment to look at Jesus' example and what did, what did Jesus do. Now we know, and if you read the books that support the social justice uh, that is it, that coming into, from our culture, we, we know that Jesus did feed the hungry. He took care of the poor. He helped the disenfranchised. Uh, he, uh, he went out to people that nobody else would go to. And he healed diseases. We know that. But we also know he spent a lot of time with rich people, didn't he? Mary and Martha and Lazarus were probably very wealthy people from all we can gather. Uh, the Levi, Matthew, was a wealthy individual. Zacchaeus was a wealthy individual. He didn't just spend his time with the poor and the prostitutes. He, he spent his time with Pharisees. He spent his time with all sorts of people. And so we find he is fair in that regard. Um, so, but why did he do that? Now, you're familiar with John 20:30, 30, I, su- I assume, right? I'm going I'm to turn there anyway. I-, I don't know how many, how often people seem to miss this. I, I-, I don't get it as I read the literature. Uh, they-, they-, they keep going back to the signs of Christ and, w- and what he did without plugging in John 20, that says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciple. The sign was not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you will have life in his name. He did these things for a purpose. There were signs pointing to who he was. And if we miss that, we miss the example of Christ. And it's very difficult for us to follow the example of Christ if we don't know why he did what he did. Jesus showed uh, personal compassion but here's what Jesus did not do he did not set up campaigns dealing with injustice he didn't establish soup lines he didn't build orphanages. he didn't start hospitals he didn't develop an anti poverty program now I'm not going to have time to deal with this so let me say it now is it wrong to do any of those things no, no. But if we're going to follow the example of Christ and what the church was sent out to do, we need to look at what he did and what he didn't do. As an individual Christian, I certainly have the right to be involved in an orphanage. I have the right to travel to Africa and dig a well. But is that the mission of the church itself? Is that what Christ did? Is that what Christ sends, sends us out to do? I think we need to think about that. When Jesus commissioned his disciples uh, he does not send them forth to heal the world's problems. He sends them out to make disciples, right? And so our great commission passages tell us that that is what he sent them out to do, to make disciples. And in that, in that discipleship process, he told them to teach people to obey his commandments. But that, be, that begs the question, what commandments are we to keep? What did Jesus send them out to teach people to obey? Well, there's two ways, uh, there's two ways to figure that out, I think, uh, as we look at the New Testament. Number one is example. What did the early church understand Jesus to mean? And we pick that up best in the book of Acts. Because for 30 years, the book of Acts is about 30 years, we see what the early church did in obeying Christ's command to make disciples. And then we have direct teachings primarily in the epistles that talk talk to us about what a Christian should be like and how God wants us to live for him. So let's take a real quick look at these. Let's start with Acts. Acts 2, 41 and 42. uh, I I believe this is the table of contents of what the church should be. Okay? Uh, I, I think the rest of the New Testament... Kind of fills this passage out. When the church came together, it did what? It came together to hear the apostles' teaching, fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread, which is probably the Lord's Supper, maybe coupled with with their, their agape feast. The verse before that, 41, talks about going out to evangelize. I think that encapsulates the whole thrust of the ministry of the church. To bring the gospel to the lost. And when they're saved. We bring them into our churches. To disciple them. By teaching them the apostles teaching. Praying together. fellowshipping, the Lord's Supper. I think that's the the essence of the church. And as we stray from that. Into other things. We do so at our own peril. Uh, There are no examples. Of early Christians. Attempting to transform. Or create culture. Always recall, and I know you all know this, but when, this was, when the, these books were written, it was written in the, during the Roman Empire when Nero was on the throne for the most part. It was godless. And there, you could hardly find a sinful behavior that's prevalent in our society today that wasn't prevalent and worse in the first century. And yet we find no examples of them trying to transform society directly. Their transformation of any culture that they were in came indirectly through the bringing forth the gospel and discipling people. That was their methodology throughout the book of Acts. When we come to the epistles, where we have most of our theological teaching, uh, we find the focus is, is uh, to, toward establishing truth, combating error, correcting false living, and leading Christians into godliness. And so if you're an expository preacher, and you should be, if you're a pastor. Have you read read Walt Kaiser's book on on preaching? He he writes in there that he believes in expository preaching. He said, once in a while, maybe once every ten years, you can do a topical sermon, but then immediately repent and go back and do expository preaching. (laughs) Might be a little extreme, but you get the point. Even topical sermons can be expository sermons. I preached a series recently on worship. It's been about three months going through worship. But there were all expository messages on worship, different aspects of it. So, uh, but if, if you're an expositor of Scripture, if, and of course Andy Stanley says that's cheating, if you're an expositor, that's not the way to preach the Bible, he says. should always be topical. But if you're actually doing that, you're going to go through everything God tells us to believe and teach. And when you do that, you come away seeing that this is what God wanted us to do. He wanted us to uh, teach truth, to battle error, to correct false living, and to lead God's people in godliness. Society is relatively ever mentioned in the New Testament. There are a few places. I'm going to take you to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because this is not as well known. And yet I think this little, little section here. Just a couple verses gives us a really good picture of our role in society as citizens of this world. We're citizens of this world. And we need to keep that in mind. What does Titus under the, or Paul say to Titus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He says in verse 1, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. So that kind of reiterates what it says in Romans and in First 1 Peter concerning being obedient to our to our government. But it also says, Be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peace, peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We should do good to all people. Whoever the Lord brings in our path, we should do good to them. So we keep that in mind this week as we're at this conference. And we're going to have waiters and waitresses or whatever that are not necessarily going to do the right thing. Or we're going to get aggravated because they just moved us from one room to the other because of a leak in our room. I didn't like that. Now I can be nasty, and I can I can get on somebody's case, or I can be good to all men, and women. I can treat them as Christ would have me treat them because I am a light, and especially here. They know who we are, you know. So if you're going to be nasty, take off your IFCA tag, put on that Assembly of God one, they laid around here. <laughs> and 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 go up and do it. But man, you know, don't give Christ a black eye, right? The second part we can get rid of on, on the text there. All right? Okay, so, so I, I see this. So people sometimes get, Well, I you mean, you're not supposed to help people? You're not supposed to be kind to unbelievers? If your neighbor's house gets flooded, if they're not a Christian, you just leave them alone? That's not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. Be good to all people. And that really summarizes the love of Christ that we have for the unbeliever. Uh, so what was Christians actually taught in the New Testament? And again, I'm going to give you a thumbnails real quickly here. When we actually look at the New Testament and how we are to spend our time, our energy, our money, and so forth, we find that Christians were taught to care for Christian poor. I, I want to say that clearly because we get a lot of rhetoric today that the church should be taking care of all the poverty programs in the world. I heard Franklin Graham say that on a talk show, that the the government took over the the priority of the church. The church should be taking care of all the poor. And the host, talk show host, said, you mean you think the church could take care of all these millions and billions of people that are in poverty? And Graham immediately backed off and said, Oh, I don't mean that. That's not possible. Well, no, it's not possible, nor is it mandated in Scripture. In the New Testament, and you'll have to check this out if you're not sure, the Christians were told to take care of their own poor. Acts chapter 6. They fed the widows. They didn't feed the widows of all the widows in Jerusalem. They fed the widows who were in Jerusalem who were Christians. that needed to be fed. Um, They were to handle their own legal differences. So we find in 1 Corinthians 6, why would you go to court against a brother? Don't you have anybody in the church that can handle these things? Have any of you pastors, have any of you ever had a, somebody come to you with a legal issue and let the elders of the church or pastors or whatever make the decision instead of going to court? Has anybody ever seen that? I've had it one time. It was, it was, it was wonderful. Two businessmen came. Two pastors came together. We worked it out and we made a decision and they abided by it. That was biblical. That was very precious. But we don't see much of that. But they did, did it scripturally. We're to take care of our legal issues. Not the world's, though. We don't set in court over the world. And we're to dis- discipline our rebellious people. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We don't discipline the world, we discipline believers who claim they're Christians but live like the world. And so it's very focused on the local church. We hear a lot of times, well, the church is not all, we're not created to be for ourselves. We're not supposed to be a holy huddle. I disagree. I think the church is focused on itself. And we are a holy huddle in the sense we come together to huddle together as God's people to help one another, to strengthen one another, to teach one another. Then we go out. We break huddle. And we go out and tell people about Christ. Right. And once we, if we miss that, then we turn our churches into something that the New Testament never taught. Including the social justice type issues. Christians are to treat their employees fairly. James chapter 5 and many other places. Uh, there's a couple of spot, places I put in here that people say, well, these passages talk about helping the unbelievers. But if you look at 1 John 3.17 and James 2.15-17, they also are talking about believers. So I don't really find a clear passage in all the New Testament that tells the church... That our job is to take care of the poor and the needs of society. Our job is to take care of the body of Christ. As a church, as an individual, you can be involved in all sorts of outside ministries and lives. You can be involved in club, you can, you can teach Boy Scouts, you can, you can teach sports, you can be involved in all sorts of things, but we're talking about the church here, aren't we? What does the church do in the culture that we have to deal with? So the church as a body comes together to worship God. What does it do biblically? It comes together to worship God, to receive instruction of the word, um, and the Lord's Supper, and body life. We can throw a few things like prayer and so forth in there. This is what the church is about. I think we've missed that. In our attempt to, to reach out and transform culture, we're losing the church. The church is not changing the world. The world's changing the church. And uh, I think this is a a lot of our issue today. Uh, The leaders, for example, in the New Testament, the apostles, were careful to make sure that that they taught the Word of God in prayer in Acts 6 rather than wait on tables. And And the duties of the elders are mirrored after that, and they ministered in the Word and prayer and so forth. The conclusion is the church, as the church is never given the task but transforming our creating culture it is the sole biblical mandate to the world to make disciples now I've got more to I could throw up here but I'm not going to um, I, I would say this that the, uh, the early church the church in the ni- 1800s and 1900s um, lost the mission its mission and went to a social gospel mission. And uh, I'm not sure if that's up here or not. I think it is. Uh, historically, it has proven almost impossible for the church to keep the biblical mandate of the Great Commission that we've talked about in balance with the so-called cultural mandate of transforming culture. And the social gospel swallows up the biblical mandate when we do that. So that brings us back to uh, a couple of practical thoughts on this issue and then if there's any time we'll take a question or two but a couple of thoughts real quickly is uh, I'm really getting back down to basics here in my view of what the church is about Acts 4, Acts two forty one and 42 I still think is the overview of what the church ought to be I think we've been pressured by our culture to buy into going a different direction and as a result of that sometimes we're not doing the very thing God told us to do so we're finding, as I said earlier, <clears throat> a biblically illiterate people, because in many cases they're not being taught the Bible, or they're not being taught theology, the basics, and they don't—they're not being made disciples. And as a result of that, they're easy fodder for anybody who comes along with any scheme, and they're being led astray by that. And so I think, uh, as I think about the church and what the church should be doing, and we as pastors, no, no matter what our church size. Let's not be intimidated by these fads that go through. Let's discern them carefully. Let's take it back to the scriptures. And let's be people that are going back to what we're called to do. And that is to train our people in every possible way the word of God and how to live out the word of God. Uh, The uh, only only statement we have for our church is uh, learning truth, living truth. That's our little motto at our church. Learning truth, living truth. We're learning the truth of God's word, and we're teaching folks to live it out. That's our that's our, our goal. That's what we're after. So that's pretty much what I wanted to say. I've got a few minutes here, five, for any questions or comments. Then maybe some clarification or whatever. So, anyone have anything? Edwin? What about the flat earth? There's a quite a movement today on believing the flat earth. Yeah. Which I thought was yeah, but it's become a big, big thing. It, it's growing for some reason. There's, uh, I ran into it uh, most recently in England. Uh, there's a lot of people over there who are going into this. Uh, I think this is a, to me, this is a do- something that we. It's a dodge from the truth. I mean, even if, let's say, let's, let's just say, okay, you're right. It's flat, which I'm not going to buy into. Uh, what does it matter, as far as the mission of the church? You know, but it's kind of like the like the translation arguments. Well, why should we get fragmented and drawn away from the, what we ought to be doing to follow some rabbit trail like that? I think there's a. I mean, these people think they have some good literature. I, I'm amazed at this actually. I, I, I but they're they're mostly conspiracy theorists who believe that everything the government says is a lie, and nothing that ever happened in the last 30 years really happened. And so, how do you get around that? So Mike I got a two conspiracy theorists in our church, and basically I, I just get it off of so what does it doesn't matter. Let's get back to the truth of scripture. What does scripture say? So I don't I don't engage them in this because they've already decided that everybody in government has lied to them. You know? That, yeah. What are some of your thoughts when we talk about the absolutes of course of scripture? Yeah and the world today has no absolutes mm-hmm. in the postmodern era. Yeah. And that's a cultural trend, postmodernism. And uh, I think we have to simply, uh, I don't, again, that's one of those things you can't argue. You, everybody has an authority. Okay, so my question would be the, an individual. So what is your authority? If you don't have scripture, what is your authority? Because they have one. Nobody, nobody really is postmodern. If you, do you, does anybody go to a postmodern dentist? He said, I don't know which tooth is right. I'm just going to grab one of them pull it out. Nope, nobody goes. Only in philosophy and, and theology. So, so I'm going to ask them: what, what is their authority? What is their authority? Self and experience, and that's not real new. That goes back into uh, Romanticism after the Enlightenment with Schleiermacher and those guys. They said our authority is not the Bible, it's not science, it's not reason; it's our feelings and our experiences. So, really, that's 200 years old, and people are buying into it. So, I don't, again, I don't engage in that too much. I want to get off of that. Say, okay, how do you know? And, and what, what if God's word is true? Let me go back to that. That's a good question. That's a big one today. Yeah, Paul? Uh, could I stand in, in affirmation of all you've said? And it's part of my question, but I will. Uh, <laughs> Gary just wrote a book on social justice. you need to buy it and buy a, dozen, buy a box load of those? Except they're e-books, I so you can't it's it's buy a box. All, it's an e-book? It's an e-book, e-book? yeah. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so, so buy, a, buy whatever, buy a computer. <laughs> I've written a lot Thank you. It's an Amazon ebook and a, called Social Justice Primer, and or you just go with my name, you'll find it. I think it's three dollars, something like that. And, and if you write it, even if you don't read it, give me five stars. <laughs> you don't. You don't have to read it. <laughs> Matter of fact, one of the guys that a mission a mission guy coming this week, uh, I told him to to, to buy. If he, if, I told him to, to give me five stars if he, even if he didn't read it. He said he would if I'd sit down and talk to him this week. So. So I've got to go talk to this guy. Well, you know, they just keep on... They're not anything. They're all post-everything. Everything's post-today. So now we're post-post-modern. So I, yeah, I don't know where you stop. Basically, they, they, they know it doesn't work. post doesn't work, so they're very pragmatic. So they're looking for something. So I think a lot of them will go into New Age movements and uh, these, uh, these really esoteric type of things that are everywhere. This is exactly what uh, Rob Bell has done. He kept on pushing his... Stuff now he's into new age and, and teaches it with great enthusiasm, and people still follow him. So I don't know where this stops, and that's why I don't think I I want to chase all the fads as much as I write about and do these things. Uh, I, I keep going back. If you actually read my book reviews and and uh, and articles, they're really they're all the same. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what this guy says. Does uh, it match up with Bible? So I got 750 book reviews on our website. And every one of them says the same thing. You know, basically Yeah, I, I only have one authority. So I'm going to the authority and, and does it match up? And that's all that's all I think any of us can do. Yeah. Well Gary, yeah, I know that the idea of transforming culture is not the mandate of the church. But as believers living in the culture of yeah. the USA and the push for socialistic system in our country. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think this is where I would differentiate between the church and the individual. Okay. So I don't want my church getting involved in a political football here. But as an individual, uh, you can follow those principles as far as you want. But I, I do differentiate between the two. Uh, the church has a particular focus that I might not have as a Christian. But there are some of the things you're talking. I thought you were going a different direction, but some of the things I opened up with—these um, are things we need to know about, and uh, we need to be able to be able to deal with those in our culture, and, and to know what's right and what's wrong about these things. Read the right kind of literature, and get be educated so that we can help our people. Uh, because, for example, the uh, the, the gay agenda—a lot of our unsophisticated church members may not understand what's so bad here. Because it's being taught so uh, benevolently today. So can we help them understand? We're not against those people. They're sinners. We love them. Christ died for them. We want them to come to Christ. But, and their sin is not any worse than some other sins. But it is a horrible sin. But, it, but it's a sin that they're, they're going to go to hell because they haven't received Christ. So we love them. But we can't accept this lifestyle. We need to know how to do that a bit in a gracious way. Now get our backs up. Yeah. Jerry? I think that um, Paul Sager had a good point. He should write me a recommendation for this book, and we'll send it out on our spots. Okay. Mm-hmm. That would be good. Five stars, remember. <laughs> uh, one, uh, okay, i got just one more thing. We do have to live in a world system. Okay? So one of the things you need to have, and many of you already have this, I brought a couple copies and somebody already took one. This is our, our policies and procedure handbook at our church. So th- I've been in my church 44 years. So I've been writing these things forever and tweaking them. This is a, a two a, a, this hundreds of pages I don't know what it is. Huge policy book on every kind co- 20 different policies in here on everything you can imagine and we're writing them all the time. Yeah, you need policies in your church to protect you legally in other ways, this is a different this is a cultural thing we have to deal with. And so if you, I've got a copy here, if anybody wants to take it home with them, but you know everything from weddings to children, ministries to, to uh, music to whatever, you know you need, you need to have procedure. And so when somebody comes to me in my church and says, "Well can we do such and such?" I said, "Well, we've got a policy on that." And I so "I'm not against you. I'm not being an individual here. Here's our policy. So one of our policies, I'll just give you real quick, is on weddings. Who do we do weddings for in our church? Well, because of the, the uh, gay issues and other things, we went to a policy that you well, at least one of those people have to be a member of our church. That way somebody from the outside can't come in and say, well, you do a wedding, and we say, well, no, and then they take us to court saying, well, you blah, blah, blah. So they have to be in agreement with our doctrinal statements, which are clearly stating what we believe about marriage. So we have to deal with that uh, on that level and have it a policy. If we ever were sued, we have a simple policy that says exactly what we do, and uh, we're pretty well covered as much as we can be. So this is if somebody wants that, they're welcome. But these are things that we need in a sophisticated world in our culture today. Okay, Henry, thank you.